2: This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us, Bakari Sellers. Bakari is an attorney with Strom Law. He's a CNN political analyst. And previously, he was a member of the South Carolina House of Representatives, 2006 to 2014. He was the Democratic nominee for lieutenant governor in South Carolina in 2014. He has a new book out. It's titled My Vanishing Country, a Memoir by Bakari Sellers. It's a remarkable story. Bakari, welcome to the program.
3: First, thank you for having me. It's an honor to uh, be here. And I- I've admired you from afar for a long period of time. So uh, thank you for being gracious enough to allow me to-, to use your platform today.
2: Well, thank you. It's very considerate. Tell us about Denmark. <laughs>
3: Denmark is where I'm from. It's three stoplights and a blinking light. It's filled with amazing people, good souls. One of the reasons that my book is entitled My Vanishing Country is, you know, Denmark used to be like the rest of the rural South, a place where you had a great deal of upward economic mobility, especially for people of color. Had if I, if I, I right. can
2: interrupt real quickly, just for people who might be horribly confused right now, we're talking about oh, yeah. the city of Denmark, South Carolina, <laughs> south Carolina not the country. Yes. Go ahead.
3: Yes. I'm Trust sorry. me, that's a that's a bar trick that I pull out sometimes when people ask me where I'm from. I <laughs> say Denmark and just watch, watch the stairs. Uh, but like most of the poor rural South, where you had railroad tracks that go east, west, north, and south, where you had textile mills, et cetera, what once had you know, a bubbling small businesses in an economy. And is now vanishing before our eyes. In my vanishing country, what I wanted to do was give a voice to not just the voiceless, but the forgotten working class and, you know, forgotten parts of black America in particular. When we talk about rural in this country or when we say working class in this country, most times people uh, just consider that to be white. And I tried to throw that on its head and uplift many of these voices, which go ignored.
2: Yeah. In the past few weeks, and we have seen... You know, a woman murdered for sleeping while black. We've seen a man murdered for jogging while black. Most recently now, a young black man suffocated to death by a white police right. officer with his his knee on his neck. As he's saying, I can't breathe. I mean, you know, uh, this is just deja vu all over again. And states are opening up and, and all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a lot of kind of repressed emotion coming out right now too, we're seeing people screaming at each other in supermarkets over wearing masks and things, you know, which is minor obviously compared to killing black people. But it seems like there's this kind of whole cloth thing going on across this country that's been exacerbated by the coronavirus of division and fear and hate that has been stoked for, you know, obviously for centuries in this country. But for political purposes, in a big way in the modern era, particularly since Brown v. Board and all the Fred Koch paying for those billboards all across America and Pete Sherrill Warren, everybody knew what that was about, through the Reagan Revolution, the Republican Party Mm -hmm. basically picking the South back up. What's your sense of where we're at right now and how different is it in places like Denmark, South Carolina versus, you know, New York City or uh, I'm not sure where you're living right now?
3: So that's a that's a good question. And, you know, one of the things that the coronavirus COVID-19 has shown us is the systemic injustice and racism we have in this country. And we can utilize data to pinpoint that. You look at Alabama has the highest death rate in the entire country, majority of which are black from Atlanta, Georgia to New York City, to Chicago, to Milwaukee, Detroit where you have African-Americans, which are minority percentages of the population, are the majority of the ones dying. And the reason being is not because we need more vitamin D, as someone told me on C-SPAN on Friday. And the reason being is not because we need to stop drinking and smoking, as the United States Surgeon General stated from the well of the press room in the White House. But we have these systemic and institutionalized structures of racism in our country, which I talk about in my book. And you asked a good question, and so what are those institutions? Well, in Denmark, where I'm from, and a lot of places that are the rural south, the forgotten parts of this country, you live in a food desert, which means that you can't go two or three miles and get uh, healthy food alternatives, which means that you get Kool-Aid and sugar, you add water, you stretch it for a week, and that means you're more likely to probably have diabetes. Because of a lack of expansion of Medicaid, our hospitals are closed down, which means you don't have access to quality care the water is not potable in my hometown of Denmark. I mean you have water that is more contaminated than that of Flint, Michigan. So you're ingesting that, and you're breathing in air that is not of quality because you're living next to brownfields or manufacturing plants and so you're more inclined to have asthma. So all of these things, Tom, lend themselves to when the United States of America gets coronavirus, black folk die. And you talk about that trauma of the systemic injustices and then I keep having to go on Twitter and on CNN, and watch these images of black folk being killed by state-sanctioned violence, whether or not it's Breonna Taylor, who was in her home on a no-knock search warrant, or whether or not it was Ahmaud Arbery, who was just gunned down, or whether or not it's this young man in, in Minnesota. It doesn't matter. That pain is still there. And for a lot of us, I tried to write about that trauma in My Vanishing Country, because it dates back from when my father was arrested and shot in the Orange River Massacre, all the way through when my really good friend and colleague in the Statehouse, Clemente Pinkney, was shot in Mother Emanuel AME, And so it's this trauma that's bubbling over, and we're trying to get our voices heard, and I just tried to put that pain on paper.
2: We're talking with Bakari Sellers. His new book is just absolutely remarkable. It's titled My Vanishing Country, a Memoir, and extraordinarily readable. I'm astonished. I saw this again over the weekend. There was some demonstration someplace where a bunch of guys were showing up with Confederate flags and Nazi hands. There's a discussion right now about taking down the statues of, you know, Robert E. Lee, et cetera, in the Capitol building. The Confederacy, these were traitors. These were people who took up arms against their own country. and
3: You mean it wasn't, it wasn't the war of them. northern aggression? It wasn't the war of northern aggression? Uh-huh. <laughs>
2: Well, honest to God, Bukhari, when my you know I grew up in Michigan and I learned in elementary school it was a war about slavery. But when we moved to Atlanta, Georgia, and my kids went to elementary school, I remember I remember vividly the day that my son, seven eight years old, came home and I said, "What'd you learn in school today?" He said, "We learned about the war of northern aggression." Honest to God, <laughs> of course that was the 1980s. But I mean, yeah. But we are tolerating a level of domestic terrorism and violence. That if it was being if one tenth of it, the level of death and violence and just, you know, in your faceness had been perpetrated by Muslims or for that matter, by Mm African-Americans, all hell would break loose. And yet when white people do this stuff, we don't even call it domestic terrorism. What are your thoughts about how we address this? How do we wake up? Well, it's not
3: new. It's not new. And this has been going on from Emmett Till to Jimmy Lee Jackson to the Four Little Girls in Birmingham, the Orange Road Massacre, et cetera. And so when people get my vanishing country, I want them to have a sense of understanding of the trauma that black folk in this country go through. And when you have that understanding, then we can have these necessary conversations with understanding, empathy, and compassion. Right now, there's a large segment that doesn't even give me or my children the benefit of our humanity. That's why I wrote this book. And I'm grateful to be here with you today, Tom.
2: It's absolutely brilliant. Let me strongly recommend you pick this book up and read it. It's My Vanishing Country, a memoir by Bakari, B-A-K-A-R-I Sellers, S-E-L-L-E-R-S. And Bakari's Twitter handle is Bakari underscore Sellers, just like mine is Tom underscore Hartman. Bakari, thanks so much for dropping by. Thank you, brother. Have a great day. Yeah, good talking with you. This is the Tom Hartman Program. One of the real delights of doing this job is meeting extraordinary people like Bakari. Coming up on the science revolution this week, what can we learn from a 17% drop in greenhouse gas emissions during the coronavirus? The president of Mercy for Animals, Leah Garces drops by about the millions of animals that will be culled by suffocation, drowning and shooting. She's concerned about the inhumane way we're dealing with the closure of meat plants and so am I. Author and professor Seth Abramson is here about why Trump says he's taking dangerous drugs during the pandemic. And how much money he might be making doing it? The Sierra Club's Ben Cushing is talking to me about the banks being under fire for fossil fuel financing. When will it end? Tune into the Science Revolution wherever five podcasts are available. Monty in uh, Logan Martin Lake, Alabama. Hey, Monty, what's up? Hey, Tom, how you doing today? I was going to call and kind of disagree with you, and I'm not real
4: sure that i'm right but i think you'd go at him politically like this i think that donald trump is a sociopathic serial killer and he's going after the low-hanging fruit which is his followers
2: i uh, let me modify that slightly I think that Donald Trump is a sociopath. And it's not just my opinion. I mean, this is the opinion of literally dozens of medical professionals who got together and wrote a book about it. You know, psychiatrists, psychologists. We've had several psychologists and and Justin Frank, professor of psychiatry at George Washington University on this program, multiple times, all asserting that Trump is a classic sociopath and probably a classic psychopath. What that means is a sociopath is a person who basically doesn't experience normal human emotions. I mean, you know, they experience those emotions, but not in the context of other people, only in the context of themselves. So they're capable of feeling embarrassed or they're capable of wanting or lusting or loving or anything like that, but only out of their own self. They can't imagine that other people also can fall in love. Other people can also grieve. Other people can also mourn. They think other people are just kind of going through the motions because that's what society expects. I mean, these are literally the internal stories that psychopaths tell themselves. So in that context, there's a kind of a fine line between a serial killer and somebody who can simply accept multiple millions of deaths. And that not quite a serial killer, but definitely a sociopath. I think that's what you saw with Joe Stalin. I think that's what you saw with Adolf Hitler, although Hitler delighted in killing people. He was probably a serial killer as well. I think that's what you saw with George W. Bush. And I think, think, that, think that's what you're seeing with Donald Trump. People who are willing to allow people to die to advance their political purposes, to advance their own wealth. I think you see this with a number of, uh, of CEOs, particularly in the tobacco industry and in the oil industry. People who, you know, they're not sitting around delighting in the death of people, but they don't mind. It's perfectly acceptable to them. So that would be my take on it, Monty. Have I convinced you, or do you still think he's a serial killer? I think he actually delights in it. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it may be. I mean, you know, he finds glory and happiness in very, in some very, very strange places. So it's possible. Monty, thanks a lot for the call. Michael in Bronx, New York. Hey, Michael, what's up?
5: Hi. Hi, Tom. You know, just first to piggyback on what Monty was saying, I understand what he's coming from. Simply the fact that Trump always resorts to his tweets. He notes he has a following. And then when he has this thing of liberate, liberate, and always injecting the second amendment thing, you saw what happened in Michigan. You've seen what's happening in these other democratic led states with these um, people coming on with guns and high hostility being violent when, they verbally... He's encouraging domestic know,
2: terrorism, Michael.
5: Right, exactly. So, and then when you have the situation like in Charlottesville that happened years ago, I mean, every Which was domestic every terrorism. Kind of, yeah, but the thing is that there's always some kind of catastrophe going on after Trump turns around and incites these people. Now, going to what I was calling about, that I find it absolutely despicable, and very troubling when these people, these GOPs, are praising Trump for and saying that he's doing a great job in this pandemic and this coronavirus, after a hundred thousand people are coming um, dead. But yet they're the same ones that blasted Obama and Hillary Clinton. It's saying four dead Americans, Benghazi, Benghazi. So you're blasting yeah. the Democrats for something you called for the four dead Americans, but you're praising Trump for his job and his uh, criminal negligence
2: is leading to a hundred grand. Makes no sense. Yeah, it's, it's it, absolutely well said, Michael. Thanks. Our book today is Just Another N-Word, My Life in the Black Panther Party by Field Marshal Don Cox. His life in the, um, in the Black Panther Party. This is from chapter five, page 47. Uh, The chapter is titled, Use What You Got to Get What You Need. Before we entered into a direct relationship with the Panthers, our group had wanted to prove our worthiness by our actions. Since that was no longer in question, contact was made and a rendezvous fixed to meet at Huey's Pad on Telegraph Avenue in Oakland. I don't remember much about that first gathering other than meeting David Hilliard, the Panther Party's chief of staff for the first time. The only thing that stands out in my memory is a question from Huey as we were sipping coffee. He asked if I didn't think it better to be properly equipped before going into action. He suggested it was best to first rip off the necessary funds to get everything we needed in advance of launching a major effort. I had practically memorized his his essay, The Correct Handling of a Revolution, in which he spoke of teaching by example. And so I blurted out the first thing that came to mind, which was, use what you got to get what you need. After a long hot summer of 1967 with the rebellions in New York, Detroit, and elsewhere, we felt that our preparations had at least put us on the same level as the rest of the country and that the revolution would not pass us by. Our San Francisco group started attending and participating in any and all functions relevant to black people, and we tried to get to know everyone in our area associated with the struggle. We also continued our community meetings. News of the death of Che Guevara in October of that year had us walking around in a stupor for a while, and although they came as a severe blow to the international struggle for freedom and justice of all people, we were proud to be among those who had responded to his battle cry and had picked up the fallen arms. Huey asked if we would conduct a meeting on Hunter's Point for him. He was supposed to go, but something had come up and he couldn't make it. We were honored that he thought enough of us to ask, and we were more than enthusiastic to do whatever he wanted. It was at that meeting that we had a new, surprising experience. We met our first resistance in the form of Adam Rogers. He was supposed to have been the biggest, baddest N-word on Hunter's Point, but when we encountered him, he came across like an Uncle Tom. He seemed to be impressed with our firearms demonstration, but he was violently against the idea of black people arming themselves for self-defense. He was convinced that would increase repression, even though history proved him wrong. When we examine the history of repression of black people, the only time there was significant decline in police violence and murders perpetrated against blacks was precisely the period when blacks were organized and had access to guns. Given the wave of terror and violence against blacks that continues to sweep the country, I truly believe there is a lesson to be learned from that fact. Rogers was one of the wounded in the Hunters Point Rebellion of the year before. And a photograph of him had been used by the news media to illustrate articles on the riots that broke out following the killing of a black teenager by police that September. Because of that, we were even more surprised by his reaction. It was not until later that we discovered that the administration of San Francisco Mayor Joseph Alito had sent in money after the rebellion and had bought off the so-called bad N-words. The same technique was used from coast to coast. Despite Rogers, most everyone seemed to like what we had to say and really related to the firearms demonstration several people wanted to take courses in handling weapons and so i fixed a rendezvous for the following saturday at the parking lot of the abandoned shopping center right on top of hunters point the next day i arrived at the point at seven in the morning in order to get set up before people began to gather there wasn't going to be any target practice but i would be firing a few shots in the air by way of demonstration i knew that would pose no problem as far as the police were concerned due to their racism whenever they heard shots on the point they generally looked the other way Once during a dispute between two gangs, shooting broke out, and instead of police coming in to break it up, they sealed off the area and let them shoot it out. Gun battle lasted 24 hours, and the police didn't return until the next day. At around eight o'clock, I saw David Hilliard's car driving up, which I found surprising because we had only seen each other a couple of times before. As the car approached, I recognized Emory Douglas and George Murray. Everyone had strange looks on their faces that made it clear that something was wrong. Damn, Huey had been shot and captured. He had shown up at David's, wounded and bleeding heavily. There was real concern for his life, so David drove him to the hospital and left him on the steps, then drove straight to San Francisco to find me. He said Huey had asked him to ask me to help out in the aftermath, specifically dealing with the passenger who had been in Huey's car at the time of the shootout, Officer John Frey of the Oakland Police, who had been killed. There was also the problem of the guns Huey had stockpiled. I'll never understand why David didn't just bring the guns with him, but he hadn't and I was obliged to go back into the area, get everything, and get back out safely. That might sound easy, but the shootout had occurred less than three hours before, and there was one policeman dead and one seriously wounded, so it was hot over in Oakland, to say the least. There was no time to go by the house and unload the guns I had on hand for the training, so I followed David back to Oakland with a trunk full of weapons. David took me into the backyard of a house that had a lot of weeds and a stack of old lumber in which he had stashed the gun. In his state of excitement, he couldn't remember exactly where the pistol was, and while we were looking, an elderly black woman came out of the house next door and asked what we were doing. David kept searching and didn't look up. She then said, If you don't come out of there, I'm going to call the police. I began to panic and told David to say something to the woman. When he rose up, she recognized him and calmed down. This was David's house, and she was his neighbor. On the one hand, I was relieved, but on the other, if the police were looking for the passenger who'd been with Huey, It was certain they wouldn't miss David's house as both were known Panthers. Finally, he found the gun and it continues from there. Just Another N-Word, My Life in the Black Panther Party by Field Marshal Don Cox. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef to you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two ends, or enter the code Hartman, the two ends before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity, and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs, and made in local micro-kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple-glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com Hartman with two ends. Or enter the code HARTMAN, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code HARTMAN or going to cookunity.com slash HARTMAN.
6: Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are.
2: Welcome back, Tom Harbin. Here with you, and let's pick up some of your phone calls here. Tony in Long Beach, California. Tony, what's on your mind today?
7: Hey, Tom, I was just calling to say, have you ever listened to the speech by Malcolm X called "The Ballot or the Bullet"?
2: Yes, well, I haven't listened. I've read. Yeah. It.
7: It's oh, been a few okay. years. Yeah, yes. you can really listen to it. Is he's great, but basically that's what I was calling to say. That's the point we're at now because I really was. Um, the fact that they're trying to play off the comment Biden made about, you know, you're not black if you don't vote for him. Right. Basically, he forgot he was on a millennials show. Millennials are not old preachers in Clyburn.
2: <laughs> yeah. OK. Yeah. Well, I he, th- he, he. Go ahead. Go ahead, Tony. I'm sorry. No, I want to hear your opinion before I offer you mine. Go for it.
7: Oh, okay. No, what I was going to say is young people are not going to go for that stuff. That's why they didn't support him. They supported uh, Bernie Sanders. And even though I'm a boomer, you know, I must be Puerto Rican then because I am not going to vote for him at all. And, you know, just for whom? For 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 Joe Biden? Yeah.
2: You're not going to vote for Joe Biden? I'm not
7: voting for Trump either. I hate him, too. Uh, well, not too, but, um, you know, I am yeah. not, my conscience, okay, if you read the brother's book, like you said, that you just had on your show, I live that. Right. I've lived that for 59 years, okay, and what a lot of people take uh, lightly, I do not, and the fact that he had, you're trying to get our vote, and you disrespect us on a level. He would never say to a Jewish person, oh, uh, if you don't vote for me, you're not Jewish. If you don't vote for me, you're not Latino. If you don't vote for me, you're not Native.
2: Tony, not it, was, it, was a, it was a bad and awkward joke that he later apologized for. Maybe I'm completely wrong here. Maybe I'm in outer space. But I assumed that most black people in the United States could tell the difference between an awkward ally a, a, a friend of theirs who who said something you know in a very bad way in an awkward way versus a fulminating racist Donald Trump i mean the the, the contrast couldn't be starker joe biden sat not just next to barack obama but slightly below barack obama for eight years he was subordinate to barack obama he never tried to grandstand he never tried to push obama out of the way He never tried to take credit for obama's work he always supported obama in every circumstance I, frankly, there's a lot of white men who would who would not be able to do that or who would have had a lot a large problem with that. And certainly the entire Republican Party falls into that category, but there's probably a lot of Democrats who do too. Joe Biden has demonstrated, at least to me, but then again, I'm mm-hmm. a white guy, that, white. that he has some understanding of the black experience and that he has a lot of respect for, a, or is capable of having a lot of respect for a person, regardless of the color of their skin. That's what it looks like to um, me,
7: Tony. But look at his record, Tom.
2: His record at this point doesn't matter, Tony. uh, This is not 1992. This is not 1992. This is not 1992. I get his record. Huh? Yeah. But but look at Donald Trump's record, Tony. He's raped over 20 women. Uh, He's, he spent his early life writing C for colored on the applications of people who wanted to rent apartments in his dad's, you know, housing complex so that they couldn't get in. You know, uh, Tony, I, you know, we're just going to have to agree to disagree What impact has that had here. as a whole when you look at the prison industrial complex? And it was also by it's, it's been horrible. Well, then Donald it, Trump it, has been locking up people compare, of color. He's got concentration camps for people of color.
7: If you want to compare, and I'm not taking away from how bad Trump is, but Trump is a reflection of white supremacy. And until white people see that and do something about it, we didn't put him in office. So, the so you're willing
2: to wait another us, four years, Tony. You're you're willing okay. to let Trump be president for another four years. You're willing to let trump be president for another four years in hopes of what the white, white people My will wake vote up? is
7: not going i live in california <laughs> it's going to be democratic right. i mean i'm not in a swing state so if i don't vote for him it's really you know not going to make yeah that much of a difference. so it's more of a personal um,
2: statement but when you call into a national radio program and you know representing yourself as a black person and say i'm not going to vote for joe biden that echoes into a lot of states that are not California.
7: But all I'm saying, would you advise, is,
2: would you advise friends or neighbors or relatives who are African American in Michigan, for example, or Indiana or Ohio or Pennsylvania, not to vote for Joe Biden? It's their personal preference. Yeah. And okay. he, you're Tony, I got to move along, said, like, but. Like like, Michael said,
7: it's, it's it's basically your vote can either be a protest, your vote is a moral uh, uh, decision. It's a whole lot of things. It's very personal. Okay? Yeah. But that's my point. The fact of the matter is, how are black people really, in terms of this country, Democrats have not been the answer for black people either.
2: It was Democrats who passed the Voting Rights Act. It was the Democrats who passed the Civil Rights Act. It's Democrats who had forced it for years. It was Republicans on the U.S. Supreme Court who gutted it. You know, I just this whole both sides ism stuff that the Russian bots are promoting on Twitter all the time. Tony, I, I'm just not buying it. And Tony, I'm going to I'm going to move along. Thank you for the call. Uh, Kate hey. in Greer, Arizona. Hey, Kate, what's up?
8: Hi, Tom. Thank you for taking my call. I just wanted to say, um, and then I'll get to my comment, this every election cycle is what we wind up going through, this field, this minefield with all the grenades being lobbed on identity politics, and we can't win. We cannot win if we keep engaging in that. I mean, there was the takedown of Hillary, of Bernie and here we go again so anyway another individual who called in monty i just want to say that you know i'm i'm going along with monty i think every president who winds up in that office either you know becomes sociopathic or you know that's how they got there to begin with and you remember little donnie with the neighbor in queens she looked out the window she had her baby in the playpen out in the backyard and there was little Donnie pitching rocks at the baby. So I didn't you know, know that nature, story. Yeah, nature nurture, I mean, who knows? And shortly after yeah. that was when he got shipped off to the military school. Yeah. But I don't know if it was Drump someone within the administration who referred to the American people as stock. It was Kevin
2: Hassett, Trump's chief economist, the guy who drew up the, uh, who didn't like the CDC projections, you know, formula, and algorithm, and came up with his own that demonstrated that by at the very worst, the end of summer, the coronavirus would be gone and everything would be wonderful and we'll be back to work. And he's revised it a few times. I think now it's by November, everything's going to be wonderful. He's nuts, but he keeps going on television because he's he's very nice.
5: Yeah, yeah
8: they, they're they all psychopathic. But mm-hmm. George W. Bush, in the wake of 9 11, when he was attempting, all his efforts were geared toward getting people back on the airplanes to rescue the airline mm-hmm. industry, he referred to us back then as load factor,
2: you recall. Hmm. No, I don't recall. Yeah. He referred to, to us, <laughs> to, the American to people, people, as. Yeah. Load factor. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I found that All right.
8: really offensive. Awesome.
2: But anyway. Yeah. Great show as always. Okay, keep oh, it going. Thank you, Kate. I'm going to move along real quickly here. Thank you. You know, this whole herd immunity thing that Trump is trying to promote, this has not been with regard to COVID-19. Has not been demonstrated to be effective anywhere in the world. And the countries that are the most successful they're not they're they're going for containment they're not going for mitigation they're not trying to make things a little better they're trying to shut this sucker down and you've got countries like hong kong and australia and new zealand and taiwan taiwan and south korea where you've had fewer than a hundred or in the case of south korea fewer than 300 deaths total in all this You're time
9: listening to tom hartman visit TomHartman.com hartman.com for audio and video
2: archives and here, where Trump seems to be going for her herd immunity, we're over 100,000. And frankly, I think we're heading for a 1000000 We'll be back. Kevin in Lauer, Maryland. Hey, Kevin. You wanted to uh, speak hey, you. to a previous caller? Yes, Tom. Uh, And I'm gonna yes, I'm gonna try to stay calm. I'm an African American
10: and I want everybody to know. And I don't care if Joe Biden said what he said, I'm gonna still vote for him. I don't care if he pick a black woman to be his random mate. I don't care. We need to support Joe Biden, this president, this clown. Has attacked the Justice Department, has t- attacked the State Department, DNI, all the Inspector Generals. Do people understand what is at stake? And for her to sit up here and say that she ain't going to vote for for Biden or Trump because she don't like him, that ain't the point, woman. The thing is, is our democracy is at stake. And I, like I said, I don't care what Joe Biden said. I still support him. And if he get a, if he, if he choose Amy Klobuchar or he choose Warren, great. Great for us, you know what I mean. We win, win. People got to get out this bubble. Think, oh, 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 they're going to do something for the. We need to do what we're going to do for ourselves. You know, we need to stop asking people or expecting people to do something for us. Damn with that. And I'm so upset because so much is at stake. The Supreme Court Justice Ginsburg, she's holding on. She's holding on because she knows Mitch McConnell will replace her in a minute. So people need to get off this high horse they're on and understand that we all that white American, black american latino we all need to come together and get this clown out of the office this man want to quit for a for anything he do if he open the churches he going to take funding away come on people this is too serious y'all need to stop it i'm just upset tom because yeah. it's ridiculous man we are at the break if this man get in office again with this attorney general that we got, that does—oh my goodness! Just look at how many people they let out because of the coronavirus. Everybody that was with the Russia thing—they're trying to stop the Russia. The people, everything that went against Russia, they're—they they, yeah. they trying to overturn. I'm sorry, Tom. I apologize.
2: But this no, means, I, I totally get it, Kevin, and I and I feel your outrage, and and I share your concerns. And you know, and whether uh, Tony—I believe her name was—is you know a well-intentioned person who's in our opinion mistaken or whether she was a Republican operative calling into a talk show, I don't know. Yeah, but that, yeah. you know, when she started going into both sides-ism, that yeah. is the Republican yeah. sales pitch right now. And it's also exactly. the Russian sales pitch. And, exactly. and uh, you know, we can't be suckers. We can't let, we you know, can. let that, it ha- you know, we can't buy into in that crap. We can. It
7: happened
10: in 2016, less of two evils. Y'all see what the evil is now, right? You see what the evil yeah. is. You went out there, the less of two evils, well, you got evil.
2: Thank you, Tom. Appreciate you. Yeah, thank you, Kevin. Well said. <laughs> oh, boy, what a day, huh? And, uh, you know, what a, just, what a time, generally speaking. Tom Harbin here. Did you know that the Second Amendment was written to protect the slave patrols in South Carolina and Georgia back in the day? It's in my new book, The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment, Check it out. Thanks so much. You and Kenyatta in Los Angeles. Hey, Kenyatta, what's on your mind today?
9: Mr. Hartman, I uh, wanted to tell you that you have always been so gracious to me, and I'm not going to get on your air. As you know, I'm a gentleman. I'm not going to get on your air and argue with you. Are you there? Oh, feel free. Yeah. Oh, okay. And you're always no, welcome no, no, to no, no. argue with me because, yeah. No, I'm I'm not going to be I do learned that, from being argued with. But no, listen, but I want to say this to you though. Because I've always enjoyed your program because of the intellectual honesty that you always bring to the table. And I you have been, been consistent copy. with that. Well, there is. And the but is, Tom, so you've had get a couple it. of callers talk about the Democrat party versus Republican party and as you know, I am a nonpartisan person. But here's the thing. I think the Democrats are making a tactical error. And as black people in this country, we constantly get this invisibility factor. We right now, and I'm going to speak for myself because I'm not all black people. We're not monolithic. But you know, you just had a situation in New York where this guy was birdwatching, a black man birdwatching. And uh, there was a white woman with a dog, and the dog was off of a leash, and the city ordinance required a leash, and he asked her very nicely, very intelligently, very well-spoken, very calmly, to put the dog on the leash. And she said to him, I'm going to call the police and tell them that an African-American man is threatening my life. Right. These things, these, thi- these things, um, and then we have Ahmaud Aubrey and Brianna Taylor and so forth and so on. What I'm trying right. to say is that you've got to understand as black people in America, we're not seeing anything different from either of these parties on the ground. We're not. You can talk about voting rights all you want, and what happens to our votes? They get nullified, they get thrown in the trash, they get all kinds of stuff. The bottom line is we don't care about that when we are getting killed in the streets, when white men get in pickup trucks and hunt us down. And that happens no matter what or who is in office, whether they're Democrats or Republicans. And I don't see either party. I don't see either of them addressing this very issue. So to turn around and then ask for our votes, I think is intellectually
2: disingenuous. I really do. So what's your solution, Kenya? You've identified what you you believe to be a problem. What's the solution?
9: First of all, it doesn't lend itself. Four hundred years of this does not lend itself to a four or five uh, second answer for me, Tom. And you know I'm smart enough to do that. But let me say, how about a starting tell you that? Uh, Listen. I don't know. I don't. You have wouldn't a starting
2: point be having a political party that actively encourages black participation and that has a significant black caucus and that promotes black candidates and that promotes legislation that inures, if not explicitly inures benefit to to black people, that at the very least tries to criminalize the worst of the behavior of white people.
9: Well, I guess that would be in theory. okay, but that assumes that all black people are working in the interest of other black people. And I can tell you from the first and last black president that we had, I think he was woefully inadequate in that regard. Now, before you come up on a hard break, let me just say this to you. George Washington stated that blacks are ignorant and shiftless. They are careless, deceitful, and liable to act without any qualms of conscience. That was the first U.S. president. The third U.S. president, Thomas Jefferson, said that blacks smell bad, blacks are ugly, blacks suffer less loss deeply, whites have flowing hair, more elegant symmetry of form, blacks are inferior to whites in both endowments of body and mind. The 16th president who freed the slaves said that freeing the slaves, about freeing the slaves, Lincoln said, that we can never attain the ideal union our fathers dreamed with millions of an alien, inferior race among us which, whose assimilation is neither possible nor desirable. And that that goes all the way on to this current orange idiot that we have. And all I'm saying is, is that the Democrat Party, the Democratic Party, is interested in maintaining the black vote they need to do something then pay up this has to be dealt with tom
2: we're dying in the streets our children twelve years old are being shot down yours aren't i get it kenyatta i get it and i'm asking what can we do about this it seems to me that as i said that taking over one of the political parties or having you know having a political party that actively encourages black activism and welcomes african americans into the party is a start what's next what would you do how do you solve this problem it's easy to identify it problems is, it's easy to complain about what people said 200 of years course ago. it is it's a little harder I'm, to I'm say just, oh, well gee maybe we should have a serious conversation for example about reparations or maybe um, maybe we should figure out a way to expose the racism of both parties but particularly the um, republican party right now they're um, embracing uh,
9: racism. Uh, uh, no, no, I'm not problems oriented. Uh, the, the, the problems are easily identifiable, and I am solutions oriented, and I do have solutions. I'm telling you that those solutions do not lend themselves. So let me give you a quick, quick response to what you're saying, because I know you're coming up on a break. You know, first of all, if you look at the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, if you'll look at that act and its legal definition, every black person in America qualifies as an american with a disability so what do i say just to give you an idea since you since you asked the question you know something every black person in america should flood the federal courts with an ada claim i don't care let them let them deny them so that we can show the world in the age of the microprocessor what this country really is oh there are solutions but you and i aren't going to discuss them here so if every event if if
2: you're going to get a, a large Number of you know a consequential number of African Americans to flood the courts with ADA claims. That's going to require some sort of organization. Do you Absolutely. Have one? Or should you get the Democratic no.
9: Arabian? No. Oh no, no, no. Listen, unification is our biggest problem, and I don't need to tell you. I don't need to tell you that the Democrat. There was a, and I forget the name of the massacre. There were so many, but there was a massacre in Louisiana when uh, black people start, first started entering, entering the Democratic Party, where 300 black people were killed. So, you know, all I'm saying to you, Tom, when was I'm not that? arguing with you. Oh, uh, God, I, I don't know if it was the Kshada massacre. I'll, uh, you know what? I'll, Are you you're I'll, talking I'll, pre-65,
2: pre-1965? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Because prior to 1965, to the Democratic you. Party was the party of racism in the United States.
9: Yes, it was. And, Tom, all I'm telling you and saying to you, as an intelligent man that I consider, and you know what, you're one of the greatest people I know, all I'm saying to you, Tom, is this, is that as a black person, which automatically excludes you, okay, we don't see any change. You had Bakari talking about from Emmett Teal. My mother and father, if my dad was alive, he would be in his 80s now, grew up with Emmett Teal, I grew up with Eula Love and Ron Settles and Rodney King. My daughters grew up with Trayvon Martin and on and on and on. How many conversations have you and I had about this? And it doesn't matter if it's Donald Trump or Bill Clinton or Barack damn Obama.
2: We keep having this. This is where we live, Tom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get it, I get it. And I also think, Kenyatta, that an awful lot of this, and I realize this is a Republican mantra, is not necessarily going to be solved by law. It's going to be solved by changing people's perspectives. And that's a, a much bigger challenge. Indeed. How do you reach out or how do you and I reach out to you know, some guy in the South who actually literally believes that black people are genetically inferior to white people? How do we do that?
9: frankly Tom, you really want an honest answer? I don't think you can. Yeah. I don't think a four, I don't think a 400 year deficit. I don't think you can overcome
2: that. I don't. Yeah. Well I think it's being overcome and frankly I think that education had a large piece of that. And Louise, my wife you know took a black studies class in eighth grade and it changed her life It completely recalibrated her understanding of these things. I think it's possible, but I I think it's going to take a hell of a lot of work. Kenyatta, thank you. I always appreciate our thoughtful conversation.
9: Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives.
2: By the way, Kenyatta writes uh, some really great op-eds over at opednews.com.
0: We'll be back.
2: Barbara in Chicago Heights, Illinois. Hey, Barbara, what's on your mind today? Hi,
11: Tom. How are you today?
2: I am well. How are you, Barbara?
11: I am well, and thank you for taking my call. It's really hard to follow Kenyatta. But
2: <laughs> yeah, it always is. But yes.
11: <laughs> I'm going to do <laughs> what I can. Is brilliant. Um brilliant. One thing I have—I have a question. I want your opinion. But one thing I want to say is, the lady that called, the solicitor called earlier, has called into other talk shows with both sides are really bad for black people. So it's not Joe Biden. So do you think
2: she's an employee of a a Republican campaign or something?
11: I'm not even going to question her motive too much, but I know that she called in, what's his name, Norman Goldman? Yeah. And you know how long Norman has been off the air.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, she might just be a person who loves to call in to talk radio. You know, sometimes it's that, sometimes it's somebody who's doing it for some other reason. I, I, I'm i not going to judge her. You know, I'm, I'm not either. Her her word. Yeah.
11: But it's not necessarily Thanks, Joe Biden. So, so all of those yeah. that are listening in Michigan and Indiana and Wisconsin, it's not Joe Biden. So if you're thinking about listening to what she's saying, consider she's just, I don't know who she votes for. I'm really not yeah. sure. So I guess she votes for Jill Stein. I'm not sure who she votes for. So, but my question to you is okay, since we have this issue now, Kenyatta might be one of those that really wants Kamala Harris. I doubt if it would be Stacey Abrams because I don't think she has all the experience that's needed right now to be the VP choice. But if he chooses someone like Kamala Harris who would have that experience, do you think that's going to depress? Because we're worried about depressing the black vote right now but well, do you think that would depress the progressive vote or the independent vote if Kamala Harris becomes his VP choice?
2: I think that it might vary, very marginally, but I don't think that it would to the extent that it would be a, a problem. I think, frankly, <laughs> what made of, uh, Kamala, putting Kamala Harris on the ticket. Okay. First of all, the upside of it is you know you've got a black woman on the ticket and so you know that's another revolutionary thing and it's a great thing and a lot of people are going to get very excited about that on the other hand the two groups who are going to say wait a minute i'm not excited about that where you're going to see that loss are the white racists and frankly more and more they're being filtered out of the democratic party they just can't survive in the democratic party's milieu and they're not comfortable there as they're going to the republican party so i don't think it's going to have that much impact there Although in that undecided, you know, the, the swing voters, it will have some impact there. But frankly, I think her time as a prosecutor and an attorney general, during which she was kind of tough on crime on occasion, and then she gave Steve Mnuchin a pass, you know, the rich white guy banker, mm-hmm. that's the stuff that was used against her in the primary, and that's the stuff that would be used against her in the general, in my opinion. Did I answer your question? I, but I think she would do just fine. I would not disqualify her for any reason. Barbara, you say a quick one. I'm sorry for how loud the music thank is. Thank you, Tom. Okay, thank you, Barbara. Good talking to you. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees' distribution and borrowing, everything costs more.
6: Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives.
2: This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Stand Up, Struggle Forward by Sanyika Shakur. This is a book that was written back in the late 90s, but it's still very, very timely. This is from the second chapter titled Class Antagonisms Inside the Fundamental Contradiction of National Oppression. Having just passed the 19th and quickly approaching the 20th anniversary of the L.A. rebellion, we should be reminded here of what Rodney King whimpered as he stood in front of a bank of microphones surrounded by class enemies and neocolonial politicians. We should remember how he'd been dressed in that non-threatening cardigan sweater, white shirt, and black tie, how his hair had been tortured into submission by a jerry curl. We should reflect as well upon how timid and spooked he looked and on how concerned and stern those who flanked him were as well that was a kodak moment it was staged to foster an image of contrition and resignation submission a victim rodney king had been led to believe through a bourgeois sense of reasoning that the rebellion was really about him that the reason new africans and mexicanos took to the streets of south central was the result of his filmed beating that of course is typical of mechanical bourgeois thinking what it's not typical of however is someone from the hood and this cuts both ways no one in the Hoods and Barrios ever thought it was about Rodney King. We'd all seen the film over and over like everyone else, but that was par for the course. We'd always seen that, long before anybody caught it on tape. Actually, we'd experienced much more than that. Why, it's safe to say that the Hoods had gone to war with each other in vicious waves of internal, intraclass combat for much less than that. Though, because of a general colonial mentality which prevents the challenging of bottom-up oppression, the same Hood forces will not, in any systemic way, wage war on the pigs, or for freedom, land, and socialism. Rodney King alone, and of his own accord, would not have thought to hold a press conference to ask the asinine question in the form of a whimpering request, can't we just all get along? The fact of the matter is, we are getting along. New Africans and Mexicanos are getting along just fine. What we couldn't understand was why he was admonishing us for getting at the exploiters of our communities. The impression he gave with his handler's hands up his back like a ventriloquist troll was that a race riot was going on, as if we had all begun to kill each other or burn and rob each other's homes. His handlers compelled him to send up a false flag, a diversion. But you see, this was the very thing that exposed the classed interests and reactionary politics of the Uncle Toms that had been designated to handle him, and by extension, us. Let's go back for a minute. Let's talk social development, aka history. There exists a fundamental contradiction in our lives that, like an elephant in the room, no one wants to acknowledge. As a consequence of the war waged upon various African nations by European powers, those of us captured and kidnapped were taken out of our own self-determining social developments and violently forced into Euro-American history. This is not simply a clever play on words. This is a reality. We lost the ability to control our own destiny. Read that again. From that time until now, the fundamental basic contradiction between the U.S. oppressor nation and our own oppressed and colonized nation has been the governing imperialist relationship, which is to say, us not being in control of the qualitative factors that determine our lives as a people, as a nation. Our tradition of struggle against this fundamental contradiction has taken many forms, some hidden or obscured, some open and hostile. But all of these have been open to resolve the fundamental contradiction. And to regain our independence while there have been some bona fide struggles to resolve the contradiction there have also been reactionary neo-colonial struggles waged by internal enemies loyal to the oppressor nation and culture that have tried time and time again to subvert and control our destiny for the benefit of the capitalists they've come among us always imposed from above stirring up emotions and giving lip service to progress equality justice and prosperity These always within the colonial confines of the oppressor's arrangements. And none collectively ever materialize. Because without a resolution of the fundamental contradiction, that is the freeing of our productive forces from U.S. imperialism and the governing of our own affairs, we'll remain a minority within the American system as opposed to a majority in our own and subjected to the established bourgeois social contract, i.e. colonialism, neo and post We can parade all through the empire with black congressmen, black mayors, black governors, black police chiefs, black Supreme Court justices, hell, even a black president. And absolutely nothing will alter the genocidal relationship that governs our national oppression here because the blacks are part of the colonial apparatus. They have made a strategic alliance with the capitalist imperialists to act as go-betweens in our oppression and exploitation. This is a conscious class stand. The black petty bourgeois is not innocently confused, like, say, Mrs. Jackson across the street is about our national oppression, about the existence and subjugation of New Africa. They are well read, have traveled in our experience. They've just chosen sides against us and in favor of our historical enemies. And the sooner we recognize and internalize this, the better off we'll be. Black ain't nothing but a color. As a designation of our national identity, it has played out. It is a superficial understanding at best and a foolish and dangerous analysis at worst. We have no collective control over the qualitative factors which determine our lives. We do not, in other words, control our destiny, not as a people or a state. The book is Stand Up, Struggle Forward by Sanyika Shakur. Tom Harvin here with you, Delilah in Palm Coast, Florida. Hey, Delilah, what's on your mind today?
8: Hi, Tom, with response to Kenyatta, who, of course, um, has the thoughts of many people, not just black, but good people with good hearts. Keep in Mm -hmm. mind that you want to register to vote. You want to spread the word to vote. Make sure you can mail in your ballot to vote. Contact your representatives electronically or by phone. Keep on it. Keep on it, okay? And that's basically what I wanted to say. It is uh, very terrible to hear things like that, but it's the truth. But you can combat that, and that's the way you do it. You keep on spreading the word and encourage people to participate in the voting process.
2: Yeah, amen. Delilah, thank you. Very well said. Gloria in Shannon, North Carolina. Hey, Gloria, what's up?
12: Hi, Tom. The lady a few minutes ago talking about Tony from Long Beach, she does, she calls... Several shows, and I know Stephanie Miller has stopped taking her calls, and um uh, mm. okay. that she talks bad about every democratic candidate. she even talked bad mm. about Obama, but I just want to add my two cents worth in about Joe Biden. I've always loved Joe; I fell in love with him when I was in middle school when he first ran. I, and the first time he ran for president, and the reason I got interested in him was because of in my class I had a, a teacher that still taught civics in our history class, and he made us pay attention to the election by we had to carry every day the name of and where they were from for homework. We had to do that every day during mm-hmm. that time, and it was like. 20, 25 people running for the Democratic nomination at the time. But I just want everybody to pay uh, not pay attention to people like her that called in on a regular basis mm-hmm. to different shows. And a lot of shows have, have stopped listening to her. Or taking yeah, I'm going to go back and
2: flag her name anyway, so the next time she comes on, I know what I'm, what I'm dealing with.
12: She does it on a regular basis. But we need to get Trump out of office. I have to agree with uh, somebody that was looking at my Facebook feed, and they posted on Facebook, say they would crawl naked across broken glass to vote if they had to. And I have yeah. to agree with them. I would do the same thing, because Trump got to go. Yeah. I'm at Witsy end with him right now, and being a person that is immune deficient, I'm fighting breast cancer, and I don't need anything else. And I, yeah. this whole mess with him, he's pushing North Carolina and I'm only about two hours away from Charlotte. Our county right now has over 400 cases and we've had about 30 some deaths. And it, it, wow. it's ridiculous. So no, do people, please, please, if Joe Biden hadn't changed over the years, I would have to think twice but I've seen him evolve and like uh. Mm. uh old wives tell a story my mother used to say it's a bad wind that never changes and donald yeah. trump uh donald trump has never changed i started following him back in my teens and because he was on the front of every rag magazine that
8: mm-hmm. was at
12: the checkout counter but uh i paid attention to him and that story about that story was a big story back about the casino executives and it's ridiculous I think his father was alive during that time too, so he yeah. might have had his hand that in that too. But
2: yeah, God only man. knows. Yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. Please, finish, people, finish vote
12: it. blue, no yeah. matter, no matter.
2: <laughs> there you now, go. I'm, I'm with you. I'm um, I'm completely with you. Thank you, Gloria. It's good to hear from you, Daryl in Washington D.C. Hey, Daryl, what's up? How you doing, sir? Always a pleasure. I just
4: want to say that uh, I'm a big Biden supporter. I know you're a Bernie fan, um, but I love Joe Biden. He's a great man. And my wife is actually, I'm Italian. My wife is black. We've had this conversation a lot. I've listened to your calls today leading up to this. I've asked her, like, you know, different things about this. What he said clearly was a gaffe. This won't be the last one. And the right's going to Mm -hmm. use it. So if, if we're not prepared going forward, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. But more importantly, I asked her, you know, how would you solve this? Of course her answer was if it was michelle obama people would line up for miles and she's probably right sure. and i understand that she doesn't want to do it but i do think i like warren she's left of me but i think she would kind of like bring things together but i think this gaffe is going to go back to something that my wife says all the time actions speak louder than words like hillary i like hillary and i like tim kane i'm from virginia <laughs> tim kane's a good guy but really, why didn't you pick a minority candidate there? That's really disrespectful, in my opinion. So I think there's something to be said for that, and I love Joe Biden. I trust Joe Biden. I think he's a patriot and an American hero for you know still running at this point, given that all is, is on the line. So I hope people understand how serious it is. And the person that, that mentioned Malcolm X, you probably know this quite well. The people that, are the architects of his killing, or the same white nationalist filth that are running the Republican Party right now. So that's all I have to say on that. But i, I was curious your opinion on the VP.
2: <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I think that at this point in time, given how just insanely toxic Donald Trump is, that the VP choice is not going to be that huge or consequential, unless it's somebody who's, like, really outrageous. But we'll see. Darrell, thank you for the call, and thanks for sharing your experience and your thoughts and your life with us. Thank you all, all of you who have called in, all of you who are participating. Thank you for listening to our program or watching our program or however you're getting. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. And frankly, democracy can be very fragile, particularly when strongmen are like Donald Trump and Duterte and Bolsonaro, when these kind of people arise. So let's fight back, right? Tag your end. You've been we'll listening
9: to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.